Are you proud of this food, Liz? (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) To help us better understand the unique culinary habits of Mainers, we enlisted our own Liz Provencher. She's an editorial assistant at Thrillist, and she grew up just outside of Portland. But it does remind you of home, right? It does, for sure. She was nice enough to send me a care package with some select regional delicacies. Liz, I want to start off with this soda. I've heard of this one, but I've never tried it. Moxie soda. Yes, and we definitely need to start with moxie. When you think of main specific foods other than lobster and blueberries, moxie is the one thing that comes to mind. Okay. Are you a fan of moxie? I'm not. It kind of tastes like black licorice, and I think it's just like an acquired taste. It's definitely like a cult favorite thing. So there's like a huge following of people who swear by Moxie. There are even different like festivals and events that are all about Moxie. So people really get into it. Okay, despite everything you said, which kind of made me not want to drink it, I have to say, I, I don't I don't hate it. It definitely has a little bit of that bitterness back in your throat that reminds me of a cough syrup. It kind of tastes like after you drink a Negroni and you burp, and then you can kind of taste the Negroni. <laughs> I know what that is like. (laughs) So another thing we have, these are called need hams. Yeah, it's kind of like a mounds candy bar. So it's like has the coconut and like dark chocolate coating over it, but they have potato in them. Potato. I think that the potato is just kind of a binding agent to like hold this thing together. So it like gives a little bit of starchiness and just helps it come together in this little candy bar shape. Exactly. I was expecting more of that than what this is, which is just like a Mounds bar, but somehow worse. Uh, No offense to Mame. We're getting off on the wrong foot here. (laughs) Okay, so I'm a hot dog connoisseur myself, so I'm excited about this. We have some Red Snapper hot dogs, and they look a lot like regular hot dogs, except they are, true to their name, very, very red. Yeah, so I um, I wrote a story about red hot dogs for Thrillist site. And I talked to one of the owners of WA Beans and Sons, which is the last company making these red hot dogs in Maine. And he kind of chalked it up to just a marketing ploy. And he said that they dyed them red because they wanted the product to stand out on the shelves. Well, it tastes like a normal hot dog, but I feel like it's a little crispy, right? The skin. The thing that makes red hot dogs different is they have the natural casing that they dye red, but it's like a natural lamb casing that has a ton of collagen in it, which is why when you bite into it, you get that crunch. That's the snap, right? Is that why they call them snappers? Yes. In terms of the Portland you grew up with compared to what Portland is like now, what are the biggest differences? You know, what do you see and what do you feel when you come back home? It's such a popular place now and people really have such a huge interest in it and it's a top travel destination and it was never like that when I was growing up. I couldn't wait to leave and just really wanted to move to a big city and now looking back, there's so much there. Portland has this really incredible inventive food scene and the restaurants are some of the best in the country and there are bars that could compete with some of the top cocktail bars in New York. There's also a lot of cool like art that's popping up and there's just a lot more to the city than these stereotypes that may come to mind for people. On this episode, we're digging into some of the themes Liz mentioned. 
We're going to talk about why Portland has become one of the preeminent tourist destinations in America, and some of the things that immediately come to mind when you think about Maine. You know, lobster, beer, more lobster. But we're also going to profile one of the country's most interesting museums, which you can find in Portland, and hear from a few people who have moved from bigger cities to Portland over the past year. They might actually convince you that Portland isn't just a great vacation spot, but also an ideal place to relocate to. Especially if you like medicinal tasting sodas and violently red hot dogs with natural casings. Well, here's a moxie toast to you, Liz. Thank you for walking me through some of this stuff. Yes. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. I'm Will Fulton, and this is Thrillist Explorers. So aside from Stephen King, who did not answer our calls, by the way, lobster is Maine's most famous export. Producer Mia Fask spoke with someone who catches lobster for a living, one of the few women working in the lobster fishing industry. Here's the story. Um, I don't mind the, the wind and the rain and the snow. I've kind of always been a thrill seeker. So, I mean, that, that works in my favor in this line of work. <laughs> um, it's definitely a, a dangerous job. Krista Tripp is one of Maine's third-generation lobster fishermen. So my grandfather was uh, a lobsterman. He was the first in our family. My dad followed in his footsteps, my uncle. My Janet even worked on the back of my grandfather's boat. And she's basically been out on the water her whole life. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I started on uh, my dad's boat when I was about eight. When other kids were learning to ride bikes... Krista was catching lobster. I always loved going out, you know, on the boat, you know, seeing the sea creatures come up in the traps and, you know, just watching my dad um, work with his stern men. And I just was always in awe. I just loved it since the day that I that I went first. And by high school, when some of her peers might have been flipping burgers or working at the Gap, Krista was captaining her own boat hauling in hundreds of lobsters in a day's work. And then after that, you know, I worked several other jobs. I worked on a urchin dragging boat for a winter, which was really cool, really fun. Uh, but my heart was always in lobstering. So as soon as I got that captain's license, I bought my grandfather's boat. So I've been doing it again since then. Oh, and just to state the obvious here, Krista's early success in the industry isn't the only reason her career is notable. Lobstering is definitely male-dominated. There's about 4% of the entire lobstering population here in the state of Maine that are women. So, I mean, it's definitely hard being a woman in a male-dominated industry because you don't really have that same connection that, you know, males have with each other. They're not going to, like, share fishing secrets with you. Um, You're kind of on your own when it comes to, to figuring some stuff out. But despite some unfortunately predictable male toxicity, she's been able to figure it out through time and effort and a little bit of help from her family. They passed down a, a couple of uh, family secrets. I think that they wanted to make sure that I was really, my heart was really in it. I mean, I'm still learning. I talk to someone and, you know, they'll share a secret and I'm like, you know, I think about it and I'm like, wow, you know, like that makes sense. You're right. 
there's many signs and many cues, but you just have to have a feel for what the lobsters are doing. And for Krista, lobster is just inseparable from Maine culture. For example, our family, when we have a get together, we always have like this big cookout on the beach with lobster. The seagulls are always swooping down and getting them usually, but it's definitely the culture around here. People come here from all around the world to eat Maine lobster, right? Because it, they do say it is the best tasting lobster in the world. A lobster roll is a must have. Everywhere you go, they make it a little bit different, you know? Like uh, someone will make it with just mayonnaise, or someone will make it with butter, or someone will make it with mayonnaise and a little bit of butter. She has high hopes for the future, especially in regards to the industry becoming more inclusive. When I was younger, I, you never saw a woman on the back of a boat. But now there's you know, definitely more women getting involved. And they probably just like the money, number one, the environment, number two. And uh, number three, they're probably thrill seekers like I am. So <laughs> one time I came in, it wasn't supposed to be as bad as they said it was supposed to be. But the wind came on quite quickly. The waves had just been building so much and I had to like climb up over the, the, the waves that were coming in at me from the south and I was heading west. So it was just really scary, really hairy situation. I mean, it was, it was really hard for me to, to turn my boat around. But, I mean, that's how fishing is, you know. It's, it's, it's just kind of a, a gamble, you know. Lobstermen from Maine are definitely proud of what they do. There is a lot of pride that comes with this line of work because it is hard work. It's hard labor. And, you know, people are going out there every single day in all kinds of different weather you know, catching this fresh product for the world to eat. So definitely a lot of pride around here when it comes to the jobs that we do. If you want to know how to make your own lobster rolls at home or anywhere, I guess, check out the link in our description. We have a great article written by Liz Provencher. All right, on to our next segment, which explores the spookier side of Portland, Maine. Hello? Hey, Lauren, this is Will from Thrillist. Great. How are you doing? Lauren Coleman is the founder of the world's only cryptozoology museum, which is, objectively, one of the most interesting places in town. Okay, so my first question, what is cryptozoology? Cryptozoology is the study of hidden or unknown animals. The main motivation and mission are to find new species. The giant squid, the okapi... All of these kinds of things are new to the landscape of zoology, and it usually comes about by listening to indigenous peoples 
putting all of that information and evidence together and saying, is this a new creature? Is this a hoax? Is this a possible regular animal that's being misidentified? The International Cryptozoology Museum is the culmination of strange Bigfoot and odd chance cryptids and creatures from all over the world. And my collecting, investigating, writing in cryptozoology since 1960. Uh, I would go all across the country to Scotland, to Mexico, to the Virgin Islands, investigating different things, and I'd pick up artifacts, I'd pick up pieces of evidence. They became overwhelming as far as being in my home. So finally in 2003, I founded the museum Right now, ours is the only cryptozoology museum in the world, and we're very proud of it. Lauren, why did you want to dedicate so much of your life to the documentation and, in some ways, the celebration of cryptids? Well, I grew up being very interested in animals and in nonfiction mysteries. And then in 1960... I saw a movie, a Japanese movie, by the director Ishiro Hondu, and it was called Half Human. It was actually about the yetis in Asian mountains. I went to school the next week and interviewed various teachers of mine. I said, what, what's this whole thing about the yeti? And they said, they don't exist. Leave me alone. Get back to your studies. So, of course, I was very curious and found out very quickly there was Bigfoot reports in the United States, Loch Ness Monster reports. There was all kinds of things that weren't being explained too well. I started writing articles about it. And once you write articles, you write books. But I also started collecting things. What are some of the exhibits in the museum that you are most proud of or people really get excited about when they're visiting? Well, the museum, of course, uh, is filled with all kinds of different cryptids. But out front, there's a 10-foot-tall carved Bigfoot, and people are very happy. We have a lot of Minahuni material from the Hawaiian Islands. We have a life-size mothman, a life-size pterodactyl, a worms from the Alps. There's a whole area of Yeti and Bigfoot material. samples from the Yeti expedition. version of the Dover Demon artifacts with tall taxidermy replica on Bigfoot casts and a dozen or so Yeti casts. Wow. You just listed a whole bunch. <laughs> Can you tell us about a few of your favorite Maine-centric cryptids, ones that you, you might find in Maine or some legends in Maine? Uh, one of the most novel ones is what's called the Spectre Moose. During the 1800s, there were many reports of giant white moose, and they were about 50% taller than a regular moose. And they became so popular that you would have hunting magazines talking about the Spectre Moose. But it is something that I found evidence down through the years that people are still seeing a large white moose. 
There's also uh, different variations on the Wendigo, which is a Micmac, an Indian name for Bigfoot in the East. The Wendigo are a little more aggressive than the out west versions of Bigfoot. They don't like dogs. They attack people. There's mystery sharks. There's sea serpent reports. You also have reports of giant snakes. Uh, we had reports a couple years ago of a 10-foot-long giant snake. Two police officers actually saw it swimming across the river here, and uh, it had a beaver in its mouth. So people all of a sudden took it very seriously. Lauren, you know, I think this is a, a big question, and I want to get your take on it, and I'm sure you've thought about this a lot. Um, but what do you think it is about these regional creatures, these cryptids, that continues to captivate the imagination of so many people for hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years? Well, most people's lives are very boring. I mean, generally, we all have to work. We all have to eat. We all have to do a certain amount of things that just keep us going. And crypto-tourism has become very popular in recent years. You're looking for footprints of cryptids, or you're hunting Bigfoot, or you're you know, taking a, a boat trip or a ferry trip, and, and you're looking for uh, sea serpents or lake monsters. That becomes very exciting. It, it adds dimension to uh, your life that really is very engaging. People love that. There's still a need for people to uh, use their mind in a very creative way. Most definitely. Really my last question, because I, I, I marked down on a note, you, you said uh, you were describing the uh, the Yeti or, or the Bigfoot statue, and you said it, it almost looks like a real uh, Bigfoot, or it's supposed to. How do you determine that? Well, we know that there are real sightings. As soon as a cryptid is captured and verified, we lose that species to cryptozoology, and it jumps over that barrier to zoology. So, you know, a new monkey was discovered last year. There was a new bird found in Central Park. There was a new crayfish found in a river in Tennessee. Those all used to be cryptids, so that's real. Uh, the only reason I talk about our model of the Bigfoot in the museum is it looks like what people are saying is real because it's eight foot tall, it weighs 500 pounds, it's completely covered with uh, muskox and furs, so that looks exactly like what people are describing. But uh, I know it's not real because we know that it's a, a constructed taxidermy model. This was a really enjoyable conversation. Great. I really, I, 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 I truly enjoyed it, yeah. Well, you know, cryptozoology is very much about education and entertainment, and I try to convey that. That's kind of what we're about, too, you know? Learn about a city, but have fun along the way. <laughs> Lauren, thanks so much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. It was great. Bye. Bye-bye. If you want to visit the museum, check out the link in our description for up-to-date info on hours and COVID-19 restrictions. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, beer. Stick around.
All right, I'm Jeremy. And I'm Mary Kate. And we moved from Brooklyn, New York to Portland, Maine. We moved to Portland in May of 2020. We live in Brooklyn, and we had our first baby in March, just days before the COVID lockdown. So it was a pretty terrifying experience giving birth in Manhattan and the news changing rapidly every day. We had just had enough of the city. We weren't from there. We weren't tried and true New Yorkers. We knew it was time limited, and the time felt up. So we decided that we were going to flip somewhere else. We found a place sight unseen, and we just did it. We packed up our baby, the dog, and we booked it to Portland, and we've been here ever since. We were in New York a month total during the pandemic. I'm just thinking about how I used to go running, and, you know, I couldn't take my mask off at any point because they're just crowded people. But Maine is just like there's so much space. I feel like we're, we're constantly finding new places to explore. Beaches and trails and forests. It's just amazing. We've been to the Maine Beer Company a couple times in, in Freeport, which is so cool and has great beer, great pizza, and that always felt really, really safe because you just don't have the crowds like you have in New York. I mean, that being said, we do still live in a city. <laughs> yeah. In lost places. We're not living out like on a farm somewhere. Oh, yeah, no. A lot of people are moving here from places like New York. So if somebody was moving here from New York, I would say it's a super different lifestyle. There are parts of Portland that are much more, I mean, I don't want to say Brooklyn-y, but there are definitely neighborhoods where it's much more apartment-y and you can walk to tons of bars and restaurants and, you know, get to the old port really easily. It's not going to be the same lifestyle, but I think for us, it's better. Jeremy and Mary-Kate called into our hotline, one eight three three pod baby to share their story about relocating to Portland. You can call that number two and leave us a message. We'd love to hear your best travel stories, and we might even play some on an upcoming show. If you know even a little bit about craft beer, you probably know that Maine is basically the dry-hopped mecca of East Coast brewing. Some local breweries of note include Bissell Brothers, Lone Pine, Rising Tide, and perhaps most notably, Allagash. We spoke with Naomi Neville of Allagash about their beer, the city, and what craft beer means to Portland overall. I'm Naomi Neville. I'm the sales director at Allagash Brewing Company in Portland, Maine. Craft beer is such a huge part of the culture here. Poland isn't a huge city, but for not a huge city, it has a lot of breweries per capita. I think, honestly, I mean, we got some of the best beer around. Maybe I'm biased, but it's tough to compete with Portland and Maine craft breweries. Allagash was founded in 1995 by Rob Todd, who is our owner-founder, brewer, There are plenty of good breweries in the state of Maine brewing English and Scottish ales at the time. He really wanted to do something completely different. 
and he fell in love with the Hoganum and decided that he wanted to try his hand at brewing a Belgian-style white beer. Allagash White is our flagship beer, first beer we've ever brewed and still our most popular to date. It's well over 80% of our business. I think it's just very refreshing and it's one of those beers that you can just keep returning to. I think the advantages of Portland and particularly Maine as a whole is it is just such a great place to live and it really attracts people that you know they've got a little bit of an edge to them because the winters can be really brutal and really long and so you know it attracts people that are kind of like survivalists and like to um, make their own things like can their own foods brew their own beer make their own bread like it's very much like a, that kind of attitude up in Maine. There is a huge sense of community and camaraderie. Whenever you go to another brewery, that brewer wants to buy you a beer, you know, they're happy to have you in their space. And all the breweries just add to the draw of Portland, Maine, because, you know, you can really come and sample so many different beers, so many different breweries, their different cultures. It's really interesting that the more we add, the more people come and the more they enjoy it. And it just seems like better for everyone. We see a ton of different people come through our doors, a lot of different ethnicities, cultures. Um, yeah, I, you know, there are definitely a lot of efforts being made right now. A lot of people in the Black is Beautiful collaboration beer this year, which went down incredibly well. Um, so we are trying to encourage diversity and definitely inclusiveness and just make sure that we have something for everyone when they come in. Um, so that everyone feels welcome and everyone can enjoy the beer that we're growing. Holland has changed so much. If we're talking about the bar and restaurant scene, that has exploded over 20 years. And then also um, cultural diversity as well. We have a recent-ish immigrant population up in Portland, which has been really great for our city and our state, bringing more voices to the table and just making us more of a well-rounded out city. I'm going to be totally biased in this, but I do think that a stop at Allagash is an essential part of your trip to Portland. It's a great atmosphere when you come to the brewery. It's funny when you bring people through the brewery and they say, why is everyone so happy here? We currently have a drive-through for beer, which is pretty cool. It's just like you drive up to a fast food restaurant and you press the intercom and someone uh, takes your order, you peep it, and you drive up and get your beer. So that's pretty neat, very different to anything we've ever done before. Our facility is in an industrial estate, but it's also surrounded by food trucks, there's music. It's a destination outside of town, really. And when you visit us, you can visit five other breweries in the distillery at the same time. So everyone should stop by, say hello. It's been way too long. <laughs>If you want to find out more about Portland's craft beer destinations, we have a link in our description that will illuminate and hopefully inebriate you as well.
Next up, we have Mindy Fox. She's a Portland-based food writer and New York Times best-selling cookbook author. She's going to tell us about some of her favorite restaurants and bars in town, and also some outdoor activities, you know, if you ever get sick of eating and drinking for some reason. Here's our call. So Mindy, uh, learning about Portland over the past couple of weeks, one thing is really evident to me, and it's that Mainers and people in Portland love to eat, they love to drink, and they're really proud of the food that comes out of Portland and of Maine. You know, in, in terms of other cities that you've lived in or worked in, how does Portland's food and drink scene compare? Yeah, the food scene here has been explosive. It's been amazing for many years. I mean, Portland is a small city. I have lived in really big cities. I've lived in New York City for many years. I lived outside of Chicago for many years. I lived in Paris. One of the things that I say about Portland is there are things about it that reminds me of all those places, but you know, that there's this much quality and the volume of it in a city this small is I think what is one of the things that makes the Portland dining scene really exciting and unique. From your perspective, what are some examples of essential restaurants or essential eating experiences in Portland? Okay, so let's look at a restaurant called Four Street. It's in a high ceiling, brick walled, wood beam clad warehouse overlooking the historic Old Port. And they are known for their huge open kitchen. And it's, it's kind of dark and romantic. The longer you have lead time to make a reservation for this place, the better. And then we have incredible oysters and seafood. Everything from Jay's Oyster, which is just like kind of a salty OG coastal New England spot, to Eventide, which their take on the lobster roll is on a soft steam bun with brown butter. So they're kind of doing their own thing with iconic New England fare. And then there's a brand new restaurant on the Portland dining scene that's called Helm. It's a beautiful oyster bar and bistro, gorgeous space, grown up, but not too serious. Great crudos, beautiful salads, oysters. They also do a little turf, including the best short ribs I've had in a long time, if ever. I did want to mention a hidden gem. It's called Szechuan Kitchen. This is a kind of quiet, small, incredibly good classic Szechuan restaurant with just fiery food and gracious, freely welcoming service. We talked a little bit about craft beer in Portland. What are some of your favorite bars in the city? In terms of bars, there's a place called Novara Race. It is a beer-centric place, but it's not the craft brewery local. They have indoor and outdoor seating. They have rotating taps and bottles from international small crafters. Um, for cocktails, Hunt and Alpine is one of my favorite cocktail bars. They have a really great selection of cocktails that are different, but not too crazy. There is a restaurant here called Scales on the waterfront. It is an impressive, beautiful space with high ceilings and big windows that look over onto the pier. The bar is this long, I wish I could tell you because the metric would be fun. Yeah. But How many lobster rolls do you think? End to end. 300. 300? Okay. That was a lot more than I was expecting. You have your oysters, not on a platter or a plate, but right there on the crushed ice, right on the bar. 
Uh, you know, Mindy, I know that you are in the food and drink space primarily, and there is a ton of food and drink to enjoy in Portland. But I'm wondering, outside of that, uh, you know, in terms of activities, uh, whether it's hikes to go on or, or museums to visit, do you have a favorite non-food and drink uh, related experience in Portland? Yes, there are so many great things to do here. In South Portland, which is just across the bridge, there's a bunch of cool places to check out, rocky coastline areas to walk and great ocean views. And you can check out some iconic lighthouses over there. We have incredible art in Portland and we have a world-class art museum called Portland Museum of Art. And then if you're a bookworm, we have a lot of really great independently owned bookstores. I do tend to end up at print bookstore. And while you're at print, if you need a coffee, there's a really, really great little coffee shop that's one of my faves near print, which is called Little Woodford's. Do you have um, any hotel recommendations or even neighborhoods? Yeah, okay, you can't go wrong in any neighborhood. Anywhere you stay, you can walk easily to anywhere you would want to go. In terms of hotels, there are two places that I really, really love. There's the Press Hotel, which is called the Press Hotel because it is in the old Portland Press Herald building and has maintained kind of a little bit of a journalism vibe. And then the Francis, it's a boutique hotel that opened up in a couple years ago in a beautiful classic brick building from the late 1800s. And I think you're really gonna love this. It is across the street from one of the city's best bakeries called Tandem. So you roll out of bed and, you know, be drinking coffee and eating a slice of Brianna Holtz pie for breakfast or get a biscuit sandwich or have a great scone. I do like that. It's kind of a good combo. Perfect. I kind of want to just close out by asking you um, a question that I asked a lot of people. What is it about Portland that you love? Well, okay, so we have an incredible community of people here who are aware and caring and enthusiastic and creative and community-minded. This is a place where you have great food, you have great culture and art available. There are little theaters here, you know, playhouses. The nature is beautiful and inspiring and all around us. Um, and we have great coffee. Okay. <laughs> I like that last point. This is, uh, this is, I've, I've, I'm really sold on Portland as a destination. And, uh, I hope that when it's safe, we can sidle up to some restaurant bar and have a few martinis and yeah, talk a little more about Portland in real life. I really look forward to that, Will. Thank you so much. I am excited for you to come to Portland. Me too. Me too. Well, thanks, Mindy. Okay, so pick up some of Mindy's books and follow her on Instagram for a lot of food pics and a little slice of Portland life. Links to both are in our description. Hi, my name is Maggie, and I moved to Portland, Maine from Chicago 
in October 2020 for a new job opportunity and a chance to be a little bit closer to family on the East Coast. I would say it was probably last spring. We, you know, my partner Mike and I, we put together a list of 10 medium-sized cities. If we weren't going to live in Chicago, which has been home to both of us for so long, where would we go? And I put Portland on the list. I grew up in New Hampshire, but I actually never visited Portland. Um, but we've been looking to get a little bit closer to my family on the East Coast. So now is the time. So we kind of just went for it, packed our bags, and <laughs> moved halfway across the country without really knowing what we were stepping into. We have absolutely lucked out. From the time of year we relocated in the fall, the colors were spectacular. There was no better way to be introduced to this city. I'm just, I'm so blown away by the specialty shops and individuals who start shops based on such passion projects. I mean, you walk down our street and there's an amazing artisan knife shop. And then next to that is this fantastic croissant shop. And all these places, they kind of make their own hours and people show up because everyone is so committed to local commerce here. You know, you just don't see big box stores in the Portland area. It's so charming. And sometimes we just kind of have to pinch ourselves to think like, this doesn't really seem real. It seems like a movie set. But it's one of those cities that for anyone who might be yearning for great restaurants, cultural activities, true community and spirit and art. Portland really, truly has that. And I feel like it's a great stepping stone of a community for someone who isn't ready to say goodbye to a city, but also wants that outlet of nature and smaller town connection and knowing your neighbors. It's very small town without kind of that, that overwhelming feeling. All right, that was another new Portland resident who shared their story on 1833 Pod Baby, our travel hotline. Remember, when you're done listening, you should call in too. We really want to hear your best travel stories, and we're going to share some in an upcoming episode. We have one more quick break, but then we'll be back to wrap things up. Stick around. All right, that does it for us for this week. But if you're still listening, either you fell asleep or you really like the show. So please leave us a five-star review. It really helps. And check out Thrillist's new podcast, Thrillist Weekend Guide to NYC, which is exactly what it sounds like. It comes out every Thursday, and it's all about the things you can do in New York City, where you can get the best takeout from, the best outdoor bars. It really comes in handy. Check it out. Okay, big thanks to the podcast Dream Team, editor and producer Jake Rasmussen, Mia Fask, Jim D'Amico, Megan Kirsch, Brett Kushner, Emily Feld, and from iHeartRadio, Mangesh Hadakudar. You made it to the end, so I will leave you with a fun fact. Portland, Oregon was actually named after Portland, Maine. The city was founded by two people from New England. Francis Pettigrove won a coin toss and decided to name the city after his hometown, Portland, Maine. Okay, see you next week. Bye.